This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, we'll get started. Uh, I know that some are still coming in, uh, but time is limited, and we want to make the best use of the time that we have. So thank you for coming. We had quite a wonderful first hour looking at Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, and uh, we're going to move on beginning into chapters 3 and 4 in this seminar. Let's just, before we begin, let's bow our heads for prayer. Loving Father, thank you so much for Jesus, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, who lives for us today at your right hand. Bless us as we study your word. Guide us in this seminar this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our first seminar, just by way of the briefest summary, uh, we found that it was essential, the cross was essential for saving us because only one who is equal with God, vertically reaching his throne, Uh, And one who is horizontal, fully human, could uh, could touch our humanity and experience our temptations, could sympathize with us. Only one who is fully divine, fully human, could save us. And this is the Savior that we have. As we come to Hebrews chapter 3, it uh, again begins with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. We'll deal with that more in seminar three about leadership. We'll come back to these verses um, in chapter three. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house, that is, Jesus is the creator, of course, he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So, as Moses was leader of the house of Israel, Jesus now is leader and head of the house of new Israel. Yet, as Paul says here, Jesus has more honor than Moses, Just as the one who made the house has more honor than the house. Moses didn't create Israel. God created Israel. God brought it into existence through the Exodus, bringing them out of Egypt, leading them into the promised land, leading them through the wilderness. And uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, it was Jesus who led them. It was Jesus who was that rock in the wilderness with them. 
Why is this important for us to know? Why does Hebrews talk about it at this point? Because like Moses, Jesus is leading his people, he's leading us through the wilderness of this sinful planet to the heavenly Canaan. And so the warning in Hebrews 3 and 4 is very serious for us too. So that we do not follow after Israel's bad example by hardening our hearts and rebelling against the Lord. You know, Paul has also in 1 Corinthians 10 a very similar message. He goes through, and we won't take the time to look at this passage because our passage is Hebrews 3 and 4. But I just want to point out the parallel because Paul in Hebrews is talking about the same thing as he does in 1 Corinthians 10, where he goes through the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And he says in verse 6, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and so on. Neither, verse 8, commit fornication as some of them committed. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted. Verse 10, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured. Verse 11, now all these things happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So, what was written then about their experience in the wilderness is instructive for us, upon whom the ends of the world are come. This is the same message as in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And the warning here is very serious. Now, you might think, well, we can't, we wouldn't make the same mistakes as Israel did. Surely we have their example to learn from. You know, we, we see their experience and what it led to. Um, and more than that, we have more than they had. We have the New Testament. We have Jesus and his life and, and his word through his apostles. The one thing we learn from history is... We don't learn from history. The one thing we learn from history is we don't learn from history. Any historian will tell you that. We uh, may, if we are not careful, repeat the mistakes Israel made. In fact, it's already happened to a certain extent, we could say, because we are still here. We should not be still here. But we're still here. We're told that Jesus could have come back 170 years ago, had Adventists after the great disappointment in 1844 held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening province of God, receiving the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming it to the world. They would have seen the salvation of God. The Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. The work would have been completed and Christ would have come ere this to receive his people to their reward. It was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins, what were they? Unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. 
it is the, notice this, the unbelief, the worldliness, the unconsecration and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. That's a statement that is well worth pondering over for some time, but we, we don't have time to dwell on it. Israel wanted to turn back to Egypt, and we have to keep in mind, you know, what Egypt was at that time. Egypt was the most civilized place on the planet. All we have to do is look at Egypt, modern Egypt today, and look at the contrast. You would think that modern Egypt today would be even more advanced, right? But as one person said uh, who was on a tour with me of Egypt, you know, looking at the buildings that were crumbling, she said, I can't tell whether the building is going up or coming down. And we didn't go to look at those buildings. We went to look at the pyramids and the palaces of Karnak and the tombs of the kings and queens, the pharaohs of Egypt, and the glories of that civilization. It was a marvelous civilization. It was a very advanced civilization. And it was comfortable there. Good food and all the living comforts that went with the most advanced nation in the world. Well, of course, they were slaves, too. And somehow yet, they somehow in the wilderness, when they were, you know, relying on God for their water and their food, they came to forget that, that they were slaves. And so Egypt in Scripture epitomizes unbelief. Epitomizes unbelief. Yet... Over and over, what do we read in, in the books of Moses? They wanted to return. They wanted to go back. And so Hebrews, by contrast, encourages us to hold our confidence firm and steadfast to the end. Verse 6, but if we hold fast the confidence and rejoice in the hope firm unto the end. Verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? How can we avoid following the misguided example of Israel? Fourth volume of the Testimonies, page 150, thus they manifested their disrespect for God and for the leaders he had appointed to conduct them. They took matters into their own hands, feeling themselves confident to manage their affairs without divine aid. The words of, of Hebrews 3, verse 15 Sorry, verse 14, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end are important. That, that word if, it could be translated if and, or if and only if. In other words, there is a fairly strong probability that believers today will repeat Israel's mistake unless they hold fast their confidence. If and only if we hold fast our confidence and rejoicing firm to the end will we be saved. God does not chain us to the cross. He never forces us to stay in his presence any longer than we are willing. 
It's not an on-again, off-again experience because the Holy Spirit convicts us when we sin. He doesn't leave us instantaneously. He comes to us in a still, small voice. You know, when I do something wrong, when I say something or do something I regret, the Holy Spirit speaks to me. And I hear, I don't hear an audible voice, but you know, I think what I mean. I, I, something like, Clinton, you really shouldn't have done that. You really should say you're sorry. Sometimes even my children, he uses my children to tell me that. Now, when the Holy Spirit says that to me, I have a choice. I can soften my heart. Or I can harden it. I can refuse. If I refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit, then I am bordering on rebellion and my Christian experience will begin to disappear. It's important to listen when the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Notice that it is, in fact, the Holy Spirit that is and his speaking that is focused on here in Hebrews 3. In verse 7, where Psalm 95 is quoted, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, as the Holy Spirit says, this is not just a psalm for long ago Israel. They're dead and gone. But the Holy Spirit is speaking through Psalm 95. It's emphasized by the present tense in Greek. Not as the Holy Spirit said, but says. And the fact that this is still the Holy Spirit speaking present now, today, significance is also emphasized by reference to this generation here in this, in this passage. Psalm 95 refers to that generation. We would go back to the passage he's quoting here. But when he quotes it, he says the word actually is this generation in Greek, an expression used 20 times in the New Testament besides its use here. And every time, always when this expression, this generation is used in the New Testament, it refers to the generation that rejected Jesus and that was going to perish in the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70. And so there's a strong warning here not to follow the example of those who perished in the wilderness at the time of Moses. And we could probably re recall, by the way, that this was written just a few years before 70, probably, just almost 40 years since Jesus died on the cross and gave these warnings to Israel about this generation. Just the 40 years was about up. And um, there's a strong warning here not to follow the example of those who perished in the wilderness at the time of Moses, who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And an even stronger warning not to join the generation that was doomed to destruction because they rejected Jesus. There's a parallel, in other words, between the generation of the time of Moses wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, that generation that perished, and the generation that rejected Jesus then and was destroyed when Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. And interestingly, 
if we would study carefully Matthew 24, where Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, he uses that same image as a type, the coming destruction, 40 years ahead of time. He's pointing forward, but he uses that to point forward to the destruction of the world just before he, and at the time of his coming and the events that, that immediately precede it. So he's, he's drawing a parallel Jesus draws a parallel in Matthew 24 between the destruction in 70 and the end of the world. Here in Hebrews 3, we have a parallel of the wilderness generation with those that Jesus is speaking to and warning of the destruction. And of course, we can uh, understand that it applies even more to us today. That Psalm 95 And the book of Hebrews calls for us to learn from Israel's failure in the wilderness and Israel's failure at the time of Jesus and to make a different choice. Verses 7 and 8. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. So what was the problem? Hebrews emphasizes that the problem was a heart problem. Harden not your hearts, it says in verse 8. Verse 10, they do always err in their heart. And verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Unbelief is dangerous. Maybe it would be better to call it not unbelief, but a little closer to the way it is in, in Greek, unfaith, unfaith, because it's the opposite of faith. Rather than trusting in God, we doubt him. We doubt his word. We doubt his prophets. We doubt that God will really do what he says he will do. Does that sound too strong? Israel, instead of putting their faith in God's promise and obeying his word from a heart filled with love for how he saved them from bondage, complained, and rebelled. Faith in God and his word is the key. But what is faith? What do we mean by faith? Anyone? Take God at his word. Okay, believe what he says. But what is it to believe? What does it mean? To trust him. And, you know, maybe some in defining faith will immediately quote uh, another verse in Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, right? But what does that mean? Have you, have you thought it through? Paul spends actually the rest of that chapter, Hebrews 11, illustrating what it means. Basically, Someone has faith if they're prepared to act on something they don't have as if they had it already. They're prepared to act on something they don't have as if they had it already. Notice Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
Notice what Paul says about Abraham a few verses later here in Hebrews 11. Verses 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. He was willing to offer up Isaac on the altar because he believed that God would raise him back from the dead. Notice it says uh, in verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure, in a way. So Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac because he, he, he knew where Isaac came from in the first place. He was a miracle child, was he not? Abraham waited for years and years and years, and Sarah and Abraham, they were... Um, they were past the time of childbearing, and so it was a miracle child. So if God gave him in the first place, he could give him back again. That was Abraham's faith. And of course, God provided uh, another, a substitute. As Abraham raised the, the knife to sacrifice Isaac, an angel held back his arms, and God said, no. No. And there was a ram in the thicket that took his place. Of course, this was uh, pointing forward, a parable, as it says here in verse, seven, uh, six, um, verse 19, a, a figure, a parable, a, a symbol of Jesus, that he is our substitute. And Paul in Romans 4 uses this same example of Abraham and his faith to illustrate what faith really is. But he goes back, instead of at the end of Abraham's life and, and, and Isaac, uh, you know, and the sacrifice, potential sacrifice of Isaac, he points forward to Isaac's birth in Romans chapter 4. Verse 19, and be not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Notice death, death, death here, but God is the source of life. That's not a problem for him. So he could bring life out of death. And so verse 21, being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. That's my favorite definition of faith in all the Bible. Believing, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he, that is God, was able also to perform. God can do and will do what he promises. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, Abraham believed in God as the one who gives life to the dead. Sorry, Romans 4, 17 says uh, that God gives life to the dead and calls those things into existence that do not exist. He calls into existence the things that do not exist. You, you remember that this happened easily, it seems, in Genesis 1. Let there be light and so on. He calls into existence what does not exist? For a God like that, nothing is impossible. Even though Sarah's womb was dead and Abraham's body about the same, no problem. God could bring life, Isaac, out of death, the deadness of Sarah's womb, and call things that do not exist into existence. 
And so even Abraham, who was childless, could be the father of many nations, which is what Abraham means, the father of many nations, the father of all who believe, as Paul says here in Romans 4. This is who he is. The nations, the, all of us who believe as Abraham believed. So when we go back to the experience of Israel in the wilderness, when they came to Kadesh Barnea, facing the giants, no problem, right? Cities reaching to heaven, they can come crumbling down. All that is needed is faith, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. Doubt hardens our hearts. Faith allows the Holy Spirit to soften them and mold them into instruments God can use. Coming back to Hebrews, the warning in chapter 3, verse, four, uh, chapter three, verse 13 is very important. It says... But exhort one another daily while it is called today. While it is called today. We need to realize that we really don't know how long today will last. Your today may not even be as long as my today. Even though, if Jesus doesn't come, it's likely it will be longer than my today. But it may not be. And so we should encourage one another, and we should not allow our hearts to be hardened by sin. Sin hardens our hearts. Sin is deceitful. Notice it talks about the deceitfulness of sin at the end of verse 13. Sin is deceitful in at least two ways. Number one, it distorts our view of truth. And a distorted view of truth hardens our hearts because we cannot understand it anymore. And that's why truth is vitally important. Wrong ideas will lead us down the wrong path, making it harder and harder for us to find our way back. That is why Israel failed at Kadesh Barnea. They believed Satan's lies, that the giants in the land were stronger than God, and that the high-walled cities were really invincible. Number two, sin is deceitful because it silences the voice of the Spirit so that we don't even hear the truth anymore. We may have issues in our life that the Spirit is deeply speaking to us about and yet unable to correct us on because we no longer hear his voice. Both of these effects, a distorted view of truth and issues in our life, tend to harden our heart because the Spirit and truth no longer affect us as they should. Really resting in the cross means believing what God tells us in his word. And to do that, we have to spend time there. We have to spend time there. It also means trusting in God and his power, not our own, to overcome sin and reject the lies that sin tells us. The word used to describe the heart as hardened in Greek, the word is skleruno. It means to be stubborn and obstinate especially with regard to the truth. To be stubborn and obstinate, especially in regards to the truth. 
The Israelites had seen God's power. They had experienced his miraculous deliverance at the Red Sea. They, they had seen miracle after miracle, day after day, with the manna falling from heaven. They knew his power. They had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Yet, they doubted, they distrusted, and they rebelled. Their hearts were hardened. It sounds harsh, but are we any different? How different are we? In actual fact, our future possession of the promised land is far more secure than Israel's was because Jesus has already gained it in our behalf. That was a point made very strongly in our first seminar, that Jesus is equal with God, chapter 1, heir of all things, and he's made purification for sins by his death, by his sacrifice. And he has gained an, um, the salvation for us through being fully God and fully human. And that's why he is son of God and son of man. He's earned the right, won the dominion back that Adam lost. He won the inheritance back in order that we might be heirs with him. By identifying ourselves with him by faith, we gain the right to share his inheritance and share his victory. He has overcome sin and death, entered the heavenly inheritance already as our forerunner. And this is the point that Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, gone within the veil. We, our hope should, goes within the veil, whether the forerunner for us is entered. And uh, that's something we will look at more in seminar 5. But we have not come into the possession of our inheritance yet. As Hebrews 1.14 points out, the angels are appointed to minister to Christ's followers who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1 again. And in chapter 9, verse 15, it calls it an eternal inheritance. And in Hebrews 11, we have this long list of faithful, of those faithful means, of course, those who have faith, um, that they desire a better, a heavenly country, verse 16 of Hebrews 11. They look forward to entering the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11, verse 10. Hebrews explains why we haven't received this inheritance because we have not followed Jesus all the way to the end of the journey. Like Israel, we have arrived at the borders of the promised land. And we seem to be in a holding pattern there. We have not yet entered in to the promised land because we have not fully entered God's rest, according to Hebrews 3 and 4. We're still halting between two opinions. Shall we enter in or shall we stay here? And in fact, I think we have to face it. There are things in this world that are attractive to us, that allure us. I've heard people say that there are certain things that they would like to do before Jesus comes, some experiences they would like to have, some things they would like to enjoy. Maybe, um, you know, well, you fill in the blank. What is it? But I think that that's why Jesus spoke of heaven so concretely and clearly. And we see, especially in the book of Revelation, very 
clear picture of what heaven is like. Um, you know, Jesus said that, that there would, we would be like the angels, too, in heaven. You know, that, that we'd not be marrying and giving in marriage and having children as we do here. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 25, and other parallel passages. So we don't know all the details of what heaven is like. We, we know that the uh, relationships we have there will be even better than the relationships we have here. We want to be ready for Jesus to come, but we might also have a list of things to do before that day arrives, things we'd like to try and experience. Now, probably none of you have ever had that thought here. Maybe, you know, I'm not speaking to the right group of people. But um, we have no idea. We have really no idea, no concept of what heaven is like. One of the most beautiful passages in the book Great Controversy is where Ellen White describes so beautifully the new earth. And she says, it can be known only by those who behold it. She beheld it. She saw it. She, in fact, she wished, you know, Lord, let me stay here. You remember? You know, she didn't want to be taken out of vision. She, she didn't, came, came back to this dark, dark world. There, Great Conversy, page 677, there the grandest enterprises may be carried forward, the loftiest aspirations reached, the highest ambitions realized, and still there will arise new heights to surmount, new wonders to admire, new truths to comprehend. Fresh objects to call forth the powers of mind and soul and body. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. We don't become perfect instantaneously. Even when Jesus comes, you know, yes, he transforms this uh, sinful body to be like his glorious body. But, you know, perfection is a, 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 a pathway. It begins here already. We follow Jesus' path. And it continues after we're in, in heaven and on the new earth. Still there will arise new heights to surmount, new wonders to admire, new truths to comprehend. She also says in the same context, the more men learn of God, the greater will be admiration of his character. Isn't it true? Imagine when we see him face to face, what it will be like. We need to keep in mind these images of what the heaven is that we seek if we really want to go there and if we really want to enter. You know, this is what Hebrews is saying, that we, we need our hearts transformed. The problem Israel faced is summarized in chapter 4, verse 2. For to us the gospel was preached as well as unto them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. They had the word. They had the scriptures. But it did not profit them. Why? Because it was not mixed with faith. It was not mixed with faith. The gospel was preached to them too, but it did not help them. The gospel was preached to the generation in the wilderness. The water from the rock was a parable of the gospel. The manna that came day by day 
was a parable of the gospel, as Jesus makes clear in John chapter 6. The bread from heaven, but they didn't comprehend it. It was not mixed with faith. They didn't enter God's rest. But the good news is, as Hebrews 4 verse 1 tells us, is that the promise remains for us, that we can enter that rest. The assurance that we can enter is still available. And uh, he makes the appeal today in verse 7. Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, today, chapter 4, verse 7, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The conclusion follows in verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Now, this is not just any rest. In fact, it's a very special word used here. It's used only here in the whole New Testament. The word for rest in Greek is sabbatismos. Sabbatismos. You hear the word Sabbath there? It means the keeping of a Sabbath or a Sabbath rest. It's specifically focusing on the Sabbath of the seventh day. The seventh day weekly Sabbath because verse 4 mentions... Specifically, the seventh day. God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And we know that it is still valid because Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, urging us to enter that rest today. So Hebrews 4 focuses on the spiritual significance of the Sabbath. Now, some people try to say, well, you know, we can, you know, it's the principle of rest, one day in seven. But that is never the way God, um, God's law works. He always goes to the heart of the matter. You know, it's not just a matter of our outward observance, but how we, our attitude in our hearts toward the law that counts. Really having faith and acting on that faith. God's commands always reach to the heart because that's where real obedience begins. It begins here. It begins in our hearts. That was Jesus' focus in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? When he said, if someone is angry with his brother, what? He's already murdered him in his heart. If someone lusts after a woman, what? He's already committed adultery. Similarly, we can only really keep the Sabbath on the outside if we have entered God's rest on the inside, in our hearts. It doesn't, it doesn't negate keeping the Sabbath any more than not lusting, you know, how can you lust, not lust after someone and yet commit adultery? It's not possible. Uh, you can't murder someone and not hate them. You know, you, they go together. And um, so there's a connection between the outward and the inward obedience. The Sabbath is God's gift to us to draw us back to Eden so that we can know God and draw closer to him. It's designed to prepare us and others to see him face to face. This was, for me, ever since I became a Seventh-day Adventist, and I shared in the previous seminar how that happened. I, I was not a Christian. I was an atheist. But for me, the Sabbath has always been a very special gift because it's a gift of time with God to know him better, to study his word, to pray, to read the, the wonderful writings of the spirit of prophecy that we have to draw closer to him. 
And so it's designed. The Sabbath is designed to prepare us for heaven. That's why there is a re-emphasis in the last days on the Sabbath. Hello? That is why in Revelation 13 and 14 it emphasizes that, you know, the mark of the beast on the one hand and the seal of God, the 144,000 on the other. That it is in the end time that the Sabbath is an issue. Why? Because we are preparing for heaven. We're preparing for eternity. Sabbath must be in our hearts. The Sabbath message is a, the last, mes, last day message. And it's all about face-to-face fellowship with God like in Eden so that we can see him face-to-face when he comes. God gave the Sabbath to Adam and Eve to teach the same lesson, that rest comes first. Notice, you know, when Adam and Eve were created, what, what, what came next? You know, the, you have the six-day creation, the animals and so on, and, and Adam is made from the dust of the ground. Uh, he notices, you know, that there's, you know, two of every kind of animal, but uh, he looks around, he doesn't see anyone like him. You know, God, you know, has him name the animals just so he comes to this realization, and then he puts him to sleep, and he creates Eve. And then what happens? That's the sixth day, right? What's next? Day seven, seventh day, Sabbath. The first full day that Adam and Eve have is not a day of work, it's a day of rest. That is why Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. It's the only thing that was made after Adam and Eve were made is the Sabbath. It was the only thing made. It's made for man. It's to teach us that rest comes first. We must know Jesus and the rest he gives us. Then as we put our faith in him, we can enter into the rest. Only then are we ready to live for him and work for him in the right way. Resting in Jesus, resting in faith in what he has done, his recreative work to make us new enables us to live for him in accordance with his law. Now, the message and mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is inseparable unity. As we look at our church history, we can see some important and valuable lessons. You know, we're told we have nothing to fear for the future except as what? We forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. You know, our history as Seventh-day Adventists is a lesson book for us. And to some, what I'm about to say next may seem a little surprising, but I'll say it anyway. It is not centered in the cross. It is centered in the three angels' messages. And the Revelation 14 commission that he has given us. It's centered in Christ, who is coming again. He's no longer there. He's no longer on the cross. He is at God's right hand, ministering as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary and coming again. Praise God, he's no longer there on the cross anymore. He is living Savior. He is coming again. And that's our message. Our pioneers saw that God had intervened to raise up this end-time movement to proclaim the same message as was given by John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord. And I have a handout. Some of you who were in the first seminar maybe have 
received it already. If, if so, uh, can I have a couple of volunteers to help distribute those who haven't received it yet? Um, it's a handout that uh, is an article from Ellen White's uh, in 1890 Review and Herald that I think is really, really important. And uh, I'm making reference to it throughout these seminars. And um, so I'll wait a moment until uh, you have received it. Look with me. They're divided into paragraphs. And uh, notice on page 2, paragraph 11. Page 2, paragraph 11. John was called to do special work. He was to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight his paths. The Lord did not send him to the school of the prophets and rabbis. He took him away from the assemblies of men to the desert, that he might learn of nature and nature's God. God did not desire him to have the mold of the priests and rulers. He was called to do a special work. The Lord gave him his message. Did he go to the priests and rulers and ask if he might proclaim his message? No. God put him away from them, that he might be influenced by their spirit by, not be influenced by their spirit and teaching. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Skipping a couple of lines. This is the very message that must be given to our people. This is the very message that must be given to our people. We are near the end of time. And the message is clear the king's highway. Gather out the stones. Raise up a standard for the people. The people must be awakened. It is no time now to cry peace and safety. No time now. This end time work is symbolized in Revelation 12 by the remnant of the woman's seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 12, verse 17. All subsequent Bible teachings were adopted as they could be understood within this end time framework. And we don't have time to go into the context of this uh, letter that um, is actually summarizing a morning talk that she gave uh, in Battle Creek, which is at the headquarters, was the headquarters of the Seventh Adventist Church at the time. General Conference was located there. The uh, Review and Herald was located there. The uh, Battle Creek Sanitarium, of course, was located there. So she was speaking to church leaders. But they had to, everything had to be fit in with, uh, in our understanding of who we are as Seventh-day Adventists. The great controversy between Christ and Satan, our work of health reform, which aims at the sanctification of the whole soul and spirit and body in view of the soon coming of Christ, which is exemplified by John the Baptist and his simple lifestyle, and reforms in education and establishment of Adventist schools, likewise aim to prepare a people for time and for eternity. And so in 1888, Adventists came to understand the truth of justification by faith and how this fit within the end-time framework of the three angels' messages, that only one equal with the law could atone for its transgression, the message reminded Adventists that Christ, not the law, is the focus of salvation. It was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety 
It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which, notice, is manifest how? In obedience to all the commandments of God. This is the message of righteousness by faith. That by faith we receive Christ's righteousness, we receive it all. His forgiveness for our sins and his power to overcome sin. We are saved from sin and cleansed from sin. This gradual unfolding of truth, and I've just you know, run out of time. It's just time is not enough. It's already time to quit, but you know, bear with me just a couple more minutes. I want to share something very important because you know, our history, as I said, is a lesson book. Why was it that we didn't understand these things right away? You know, our pioneers were led step by step in their understanding of truth, as not just through the 1840s and 50s and 60s, but also in 1888. We see the same in the Bible. You know, we see that as Hebrews presents in chapter 1-2 that Jesus is equal with the Father and fully God, fully human, we see this in the New Testament clearly, but it's not clear in the Old Testament. There are hints of the Trinity. You know, in, in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. And Isaiah, when he's called to be a prophet, uh, you know, he's envisioned, caught up into the heavenly sanctuary, and uh, God says, whom shall we send? And whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God is speaking. He's one, but he's more than one. So, you know, there's an inclination, uh, intimation of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but it's not clear. Why? Because we really don't need to know that until Jesus comes. But when Jesus comes and, and he is revealed as equal with God, as one with the Father, which, of course, they almost wanted to stone him more than once for this, um, for making himself God, he really didn't. He was God all along. But, you know, uh, he revealing himself that way. He had to reveal himself that way because only that was a way we could understand who is our Savior. Who is our Savior? Same thing in 1888. Actually, it's in the 1888 and, and the subsequent years that it became very, very clear who Jesus is as equal with the Father. And uh, although some of our pioneers did not believe that fully, you know, in the, in the way that the Bible teaches, they came to understand that. And it's so clear, you know, in the Desire of Ages, published in 1898, in him is life original, unborrowed, underived. Speaking of Jesus, life original, unborrowed, underived. So it, it was unfolded clearly in order that we might know who it is that came to save us. And actually, the work of the Holy Spirit and the latter rain and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the, the statements that we read about this come predominantly from the 1890s because it's the message of righteousness by faith, Ellen White says, that is the light that is to lighten the whole earth with its glory. It's a revelation. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation what, of God's character of love. Christ's object lessons. It is Revelation 18 is where we see the earth lightened with God's glory through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. She says in Desire of Ages, page 671, it's the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who makes effectual the work Jesus accomplished on the cross. 
In other words, just as the apostles came to understand the nature of the Trinity through Christ's work of salvation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because we only see that, actually, the Spirit revealed toward the end of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 14 to 16, he opens to them the work of the Holy Spirit because they are to be uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit soon. So he reveals it when they need to know it. And so also in our history, the same thing. The connection of justification by faith with our commission in Revelation 14 and the need of the Holy Spirit to fulfill that commission came very prominently. And we still need to understand it. The fact that we haven't understood it is why we are still here. We haven't understood it fully is why we are still here. Why has God raised up this movement? Why has he raised us up at the end of time? to prepare the world for Christ's second coming. And we do it by resting in God's work. Resting means believing that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. It's not our work, it's his work. It's not our power, it's his power that will finish his work. This is what it means to really rest in the cross. Well, our time is over. You've been very patient. I don't have time to finish the... PowerPoint, but let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Bless us as we continue our study of Hebrews in the afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.